morning icon. If you will uh, remain standing for the reading of God's word. If you will remain standing. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we know this every week, but maybe we feel it more today. The need that we have for your help, for your, for your Holy Spirit to, to come to us and meet us where we're at. I know that there are, are so many here for whom this text is a difficult text, a challenging text, maybe even in the wrong way, a shaming text. So I pray that that today as we explore a a sensitive topic like sex and sexual desire, God, I ask that you would give us a vision for what you intend in our sexuality, the beauty of it. God, I pray that you'd give for those necessary a sense of sobriety on how much deviant sexual desire can destroy. And I pray that above all, we would see a great vision of who Jesus Christ is that would win our hearts over to seek you and to, as Jesus shows, do whatever it takes to walk in purity and worship to you. And so, Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and give us reverence and surrender today. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is, uh, it is good to be uh, with you. For those of you who have not yet met, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, it is good to be back with you. Uh, last week, I was in Dallas, and you got to hear from Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, I told one of my mentors when I was down there, he asked me who was filling in, and I told him Jeff Vanderstelt, and he just looked at me and said, Joshua, maybe next time, get a preacher who's worse than you, you know? Um, and so... Sorry, uh, sorry for quite the disappointment that I'm back, but uh, hopefully, it's, hopefully it's okay. Uh, and I am excited to get back into our Jesus the Great Philosopher series. And uh, to kick us off today, I want to tell you about how uh, I catch myself becoming more and more like my dad every day. Uh, I, I'm 31 and a father of two, and, and since becoming a dad, I, I just notice or, or care about things that I never really cared about before. Uh, maybe you've seen those progressive insurance uh, commercials that are genius, you know, about uh, being able, you know, the guy who helps you not become your parents when you become a home- homeowner. It's genius because it's real. Like they're, they're, we begin to shape into, uh, into our parents as we get older. And, and so I feel like I'm, I'm constantly uh, going behind people and turning off lights. Um, I, that's something I think about. Uh, I think about what's plugged in um, every night when I go to bed. We live in an old house. I, I like make sure the plugs are like all the way in the socket, you know, just dad things, you know. Um, but, but one thing that, uh, that really has, uh, that I'm really starting to become like my dad is in how, how concerned I am about candles. Uh, you see, my dad, 
Every time we got in the car when we would go somewhere, the first words out of his mouth were, did you unplug the blow dryer and did you blow out the candle? Uh, And I do the same thing now. I am like, it's not an exaggeration to say that every night I go to bed, I think, was there a candle that was lit? Because there most likely was. I'm a candle guy. I got an anthropology candle in my office. It's wonderful. Um, And so I'm always thinking, is there a candle that's off? And And so I'll kind of think through and try to rehearse whether there was a candle that was going and whether I need to blow it out. And specifically, the the candle thing has been ingrained of me because of of one story from my childhood. Uh, So I I, I grew up in the Dallas area. uh, And when I was 10, my family took a a family road trip from Dallas to Clovis, New Mexico. Go see it if you got the chance. It's really wonderful. Not really. It's, it's Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, but it's where my dad grew up, and so we were, we were headed out there. And it's about a 10-hour about a drive, uh, and we had made it to a small little city in Texas called Abilene, which is about two hours from Dallas. And all of a sudden, my, my dad's brain just started sending all kind of warning signals about the possibility of a candle that might have been left on at the house before we left. And so he starts, he starts freaking out a little bit, and uh, he asked my mom, did you blow out the candle? Was there a candle going before we left? And um, my mom was like 90% sure, which was not nearly enough. Um, I'm pretty sure if she was 100% confident, he still would have not been confident enough. And so sure enough, two hours into a family road trip with a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a five-year-old, my dad turns that Astro van around and speeds back to Dallas, Texas. Just undoes all of the two-hour progress that we had made, get home, realize, surprise, surprise, there was no candle that was lit, and then we get back on the road and speed back down to Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, It was shocking. It was shocking that, have you ever been on a road trip with kids? Have you ever been in a car with kids? Yes or no? If you have, you know it takes some commitment to do what my dad did. Uh, no, no amount of complaining from kids in the world would have been enough for him to not go back and make sure that that candle was out. No matter what it cost him, he would undo the progress that we made just to make sure that he wasn't going to lose everything in a house fire. And his example, I would commend to you today, actually. As you've already seen in the scripture reading, Many of us right now are in grave danger. There is a destructive force that is burning inside men and women and even children here today. This is the burning of lust. And left unattended, it will destroy. Left unnoticed, left unaddressed, it will destroy. Destroy, And yet also, part of the complexity of this issue of lust, leaving it unattended is not the only thing that destroys. There, there's actually a, another danger. Leaving lust unclarified can also ruin lives. Leaving lust unclarified, where, 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 where we speak about it wrongly, we don't really know what it is, unfortunately is something that the church is, is horrifically guilty of. The church, at least in recent history, has spoken really wrongly about sexual desire, and I think we're paying the price for it today. What some of you might know as as purity culture, right, has done great, for all of its maybe good intentions, has done great 
damage to individuals and to married couples. So in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, out of fear, the church began to degrade the category of sexual desire. And then a couple decades later, individuals and married couples looked up and realized that they have been alienated from their body as individuals or even alienated from their spouse as married couples, and specifically women. When sexuality is spoken about wrongly, when it's not clarified, who tends to pay the price for it? Women. And in that confusion around what sexual desire is, women were taught that their bodies are the problem when it comes to sexual sin. That they are, their bodies were the reason for the very existence of sexual sin in a brother. Women who were told while single about how sex is dirty, bad, dirty, bad, dirty, bad, don't do it, don't get near to it. And then all of a sudden they get married and are supposed to satisfy their husbands enough so that their husband doesn't look at porn. It's wreaked all kinds of destruction, having it unclarified. Do, do you feel the, the problem <laughs> that, that lust is this unique sin that can not only destroy its participants, but also destroy those who are taught wrongly about it? That's the complexity of sexuality in a broken world. But there's one, one more complexity in this that I, that I want to make clear at the beginning as we talk about lust and sexual desire. This question has bothered me almost the whole week. How do you warn someone who probably already hates themselves? How do you give a strong warning to people who are already seeped in, in, in shame? You see, as the text clearly shows, and as we'll get into, today is addressed to men and women here who, who need a warning who need a, a warning to go off in their minds. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, but lust is, it is a wildfire that will destroy if we don't take care of it, if we don't address it. And yet the strange piece of it is that, that on its path to destroying us, it also cripples us with shame. And so let, let me just say here at the beginning that in this sermon, I'm, I'm following the, the pastoral pattern that Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where he says this, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's Paul's pastoral pattern. It's, it's the one that I want to take today. Because here's what I know. <laughs> Some of you today in this category of lust need to be warned and admonished. You need to be shaken up. You need warning signals to go off in your head. You need to wake up. And yet some of you need encouragement. Some of you need help. But what Paul also clearly shows is that all of you need patience. And I just wanna make clear at the beginning that as I say some very difficult things, maybe some things that might shake you up a little bit, here at ICON, you will receive all of the patience needed to walk with you with other, uh, other people, like Ben was talking about. Having other human beings to share and confess your sin with, you will have the patience necessary for that admonishment to get through, for that encouragement to take hold, or for that help to, to, to work out. 
Though, no matter what you feel, you, you are not a black spot on the gospel of grace. You are not an exception to the saving power of Jesus. And so as I say some things today, I want you to not shrink or shy away in shame. Because here's the thing too, I'm, I'm not preaching this sermon from a place of inexperience. I, I am no stranger to the tears of shame that you have cried or that you are crying. I know the destruction that lust and sexual desire left unattended, left unaddressed can wreak in a life. I'm a, I'm a begrudging expert in this category. I have unfortunate expertise in what lust can do to the human being, what it can do to your walk with Christ, but also I have the, the story of grace deep in my bones, and it's one that invites you today, extends an invitation to you today of real freedom. So again, as we do the painful work talking about, uh, talking about lust, trying to remove some of the tumor of lust, we're going to hit some nerves, and I just want you to not shy away or shrink away in shame. Deal? Can you give me that commitment? Deal. I only heard like two, so... The rest of you are just gonna walk out when I say something hard. So let's jump in. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as he did last time in his commands around anger, Jesus picks up from the Old Testament the, the command against adultery and begins to deepen it to the heart. And just like anger, this, this deepening makes perfect sense because it's trying to get at the center of the command. Just like murder never happens apart from anger, adultery doesn't happen without lust. What has to happen for a man or a woman to, to find themselves in bed with someone who is not their covenant spouse? Nobody, nobody demolishes the covenant with their spouse on a whim. I'd say like 2% of the adultery that you find in the world are people just waking up and saying, you know what I'm gonna do today? I'm gonna rupture the covenant that I made with my spouse. No, very, very few do that. And in even those cases, it's lust. <laughs> Instead, there is a slow progression of increasing compromise in lust which can result in the rupture that is adultery. And Jesus, as he gets to the heart, speaks very specifically about what lust is. Did you see that? The, the, the first decision of lust is what? The look or the, the, the concentration. In fact, the best English word we have for what the Greek actually says here is stare. A prolonged look, a, there is a decision to stare. And what is the staring for? The stare of lustful intent. Jesus here is speaking of the decision that you make to move from noticing to staring to rehearsing. You begin, you begin to play the movie in your head. You fuel your own sexual desire and fulfillment. And so the sin of lust, as I would define it, is this. Lust 
is the intentional concentration on the body parts of another person who is not your spouse so as to fuel your own sexual desire. I'll say that again because we'll kind of come back to it later. Lust is the intentional concentration on the body parts of another person who is not your spouse so as to fuel your own sexual desire. Now, this, this is helpful because it clarifies what lust is and therefore where it can happen. Lust can happen in the mind's eye with no stimuli right in front of you. Lust can obviously happen with pornography with a stimuli right in front of you. Lust can also happen in erotic fiction as words create pictures in the mind's eye. Lust can happen in a number of ways, but it's also helpful because it shows us what lust isn't. I think there's a lot of us who carry this weird form of shame about noticing another human being, <laughs> about simply seeing that someone else is attractive or, or, or beautiful. It's not, at first, lust for you to notice that someone is beautiful, that someone is attractive, or even that someone is, quote unquote, your type. Initially, that is simply noticing. It's like, you know, Martin Luther, uh, the, the reformer, he, when he was commenting on this passage, uh, he talked about how we shouldn't tie the, we shouldn't have the bow tie of Jesus' teaching too taut on this as to show that anyone who notices that the attraction of another person is therefore eternally damned to hell. And then he said this little line, which has been kind of passed around and attributed to different people, but I think it's him. I can't help a bird flying over my head, but I can keep it from making a nest in my head or in my hair. That's what that's, Luther is trying to show. that you, you can't help when you do see that someone else is attractive. What you can help and what you should prevent is the bird making a nest in your own hair. That's when the noticing turns into the stare, into the concentration, and eventually into the movie that we rehearse in our own minds. You get it, right? It's, lust is about the choice to let something linger in your mind's eye for the purpose of fulfilling your own sexual desire or fulfillment. But here's the thing, just like we talked about when we were in, in, in the section on anger, if we were to be honest, placing that definition beside the consequence that Jesus shows will come from that, hell, that seems like an overreaction. Is this really a, a big deal? What, like really, you, it's okay to begin to ask these questions, to be honest. What is so wrong, and our culture asks this question all the time, what is so wrong about what a man or woman does in the privacy of their own thoughts? What's so damning about that? Why is Jesus so worked up here <laughs> It's not because Jesus is prude. It's, it's really not. We'll, we'll get into that. Rather, there are three reasons why Jesus takes this so seriously. Why Jesus shows that simply the movie you play in your head is liable to the judgment of hell left unaddressed because of three important reasons, and they all have to do with, with Jesus sustaining what is, what is most beautiful and even pleasurable in the world. So what are those reasons? Why is this such a big deal? Well, first, 
We have to understand the, the context from which Jesus is approaching the very topic of sex, sexuality, and marriage. Jesus is a Jewish man who was raised reading the Torah, which lays out very specific parameter, parameters for sex and sexuality. In fact, often when, when the Pharisees come against Jesus in order to ask him a question, what does he do? He just takes them back to page one and page two of the Bible. <laughs> he just goes back to that constantly on a whole host of issues. Because you see, page one and page two of the Bible set up much of what proceeds through the rest of the story, and sex or sexuality is no exception. On those first couple of pages, we read of a God who is purposeful in his creation who does things on purpose, unlike all the other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives which revolve around blood and brutality, the creation narrative in Genesis revolves around the beauty of God's purpose. And that, that beauty of purpose invades every moment of God's creative genius. And sex between a man and a woman is no exception. You see, from, from the first pages of the Bible, we read that, that everything necessary to make sex and sexuality so wonderful, God gives on purpose. Everything that makes sexual desire magnetic, God gives on purpose. He creates the anatomy of the man and the woman with corresponding sensitive cells that will make sex electric with one another. He creates that. He creates in the brain the capacity for not just dopamine to bring pleasure, but oxytocin to, to, to bind the man and the woman under the safety of covenant commitment. God did that on purpose. And it's beautiful. And this this is the Bible that Jesus grew up reading. Not, not to mention, he himself being the creator and originator of sex and sexuality, all to say, Jesus is not prude. The Bible is not prude. The Bible has an entire book devoted to the wonder of sex between husband and wife. Right, the Song of Solomon. That, that book is so graphic that a lot of interpreters start clutching their pearls and they're like, oh, it must be like an allegory between Christ and the church. No, it's about sex. <laughs> it tells the story of a wonderful betrothal between a man and a woman that ultimately culminates in this gift and consummation of sex. It's a song that is made about the wonder of love between husband and wife expressed in free abundance of pleasure. I mean, listen, listen in on the, on the closing paragraph of the Song of Solomon that expresses this, and we don't have it on the screen, just tune in. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. 
If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised and scorned. And all the romantics among us just swoon. (laughs) Take that, Disney. What does all of this communicate? Between the first pages of the Bible and having an entire book of the Bible around sex, this, the wonder of sex on page one of the Bible and this poem of devotion between lovers, it communicates this. There's something powerful about sex and sexuality. There is power within sex and sexuality that in many ways, at least between human beings, can be unrivaled. This sexual drive, it's this power that that causes the Bible to celebrate sex and sexuality. But it's also this power that causes Jesus to give his warning on lust here. I mean, in the poem of devotion between those two lovers, what does the author compare love and sex to? Fire. Now, let me ask you a question. Is fire good or is fire bad? Yes, exactly. Yes. Fire can be good, but fire can also be extremely bad, depending on the context in which it exists. When is fire good? When, when it exists in a defined environment that harnesses its power for the benefit of life. That's when fire is good. Every night, except for those of you who have electric, every night your furnace creates a fire in your house. You ever think about that? Am I the only one who gets anxious about that? You have a fire in your house every night, but it's a good fire. Why? Because it's existing within an environment that heats the air so that you can sleep nice and cozy. (laughs) Or when you're enjoying a, a, a fire pit with friends, the power of that fire is being harnessed in order to warm your body so that you can stay out there and have that wonderful conversation and fellowship. And yet, As we all know here in wildfire country, fire can also be extremely dangerous. Fire, outside of a contained environment, wreaks untold heartache and destruction. Homes have been lost, environments have been destroyed, and lives cut short because the power of fire was not existing within a defined environment. When fire runs free, in its freedom, it destroys everything in its path. The same is true of sex. When sex and sexual desire is harnessed within the defined environment of marriage between a man and a woman, its power gets harnessed for the benefit of that love. It stokes intimacy and safety and connection. Sex becomes this compounding interest on your marriage giving you great gains of love and connection and intimacy and vulnerability, giving you gains on what is already there. But as almost any of you can tell, sex outside of these defined parameters, when it runs free, soon enough, we are, we're cleaning up the ashes. Soon enough, give it time and it will destroy. There is a power in sex that you can't play flippantly with. It is a God-given, God-ordained, God-blessed power that can stoke the flames of love, but can also destroy when it isn't contained. That's the first reason 
Jesus lays down this warning against lust, the unrivaled power for life or for destruction that sexual desire brings. And the other two reasons have to do with what eventually gets destroyed when sex is allowed to run free, when sexual desire runs with unfettered freedom. The consequences are not theoretical. You know this, the consequences of unfettered sexual desire are not theoretical. They are real life consequences. It begins to burn things down, specifically, It burns down the image of God in others, and it burns down the image of God in you. First, it burns down the image of God in others. Let's revisit that definition of lust I gave at the beginning. Lust is the intentional concentration on the body parts of another person who is not your spouse so as to fuel your own sexual desire. Now, there's a very important phrase in that definition. You probably picked it up in my tone, body parts. Lust has no connection to the soul of another person. No connection to the soul and heart and value of the other person, only to their body parts. Only to the parts that 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 person can offer for you fueling your own sexual desire. You see, lust is is an act that deconstructs what it means for that person to be human. Deconstructs who they are. It deconstructs them and, and brings them down to nothing more than the sum of their body parts. They are no longer made in the image of God. They don't have a soul. They're just body parts that match up with your preferred type so that you can use them for your own sexual gratification. And this deconstruction of the human being is unsurprisingly destructive. And it's a destruction that we don't have to prove any longer. You really gotta wonder why the, why the participants in pornography have astronomical rates of suicide, drug abuse, and alcoholism. You want to you think through why those women off of Aurora are bound to that, not just by the power of a pimp, but by the power of drugs that they have there. They are doing all that they can to disassociate themselves, their soul from their body, their soul from the abuse that their body continues to have. It's all an attempt to disassociate from their bodies, to numb from their bodies for being used for the sexual deviance of another person. They shrink their soul with substances because their soul can no longer bear the pain of being rended, cut down from their abused body. Lust and sexual desire left unfettered, left unrestrained, ruins the image of God in other human beings but it also ruins who you are. It ruins the image of God in you. Again, back back to page one of the Bible. Do you know what you were made for? Do you understand the value and the mission and the purpose that God has given you as an image bearer 
of himself. You were meant to be, the purpose of, of God on your life is wound up with you being made in his image, which comes with certain privileges and duties. You were, you were made in the image of God so as to rule, love, lovingly rule over creation, taking, taking up from the earth and taking out into relationships things of beauty that mimic God's creative genius. And yet, let me put it bluntly, you are groveling before a computer screen. It cuts down. You, a, a would-be king, a would-be queen, bowing in addictive submission to the creation that you were meant to rule over. It destroys the image of God in you. You were meant for so much more. Like, like in, the, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet gives us this picture of how much things like this contort the image of God in us. He talks about how, you know, for idolatry to work, at least in their context, a man has to grow a tree and then cut down the tree, take the wood that he has, and with half of what he has, he, he starts a fire to cook his food and to warm himself, and with the other half, he fashions it into an idol, bows down to it, and says, save me. That illustration is meant to show the foolishness of that contortion, of bending over to what you were meant to rule over, of being in submission. Rather than being would-be rulers made in the image of God, we contort ourselves into the slaves of creation. And this is an important piece of, of why you feel so shameful. It's not just that you feel dirty. That's a, that's a massive part of it. But also, there is within your psychology a memory of what God made you to be and the gap between who God made you to be and your addiction is astounding. It's less than what you were made for and so you feel less than. You feel ashamed because you know, even if you can't name it, that you were made for more. Unfettered sexual desire burns down who you were made to be. You hear this today. You were not made to grovel before sex. You were made with such a, such a greater purpose and mission. So I, I hope by now that you at least sense some of the urgency of what you're dealing with. Wildfires wait for no one. It'll burn straight through your inaction, which is why Jesus goes where he goes next. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and then that your whole body go into hell. Jesus treats this with the utmost urgency. What, what is he doing there? Is he really commending self-mutilation? No. 
Now, he, he just talked about how it's an issue of the heart, and if he's committing self-mutilation, he forgot some important parts. He wants to get to the heart. He, what he's doing here is trying to help you sense the, the, the extreme measures that need to be taken in order to deal with this urgent matter, which is why he uses the language of the right eye and the right hand. He's communicating in biblical language that right side being the most important. He's communicating that you need to have the willingness to part with anything that is most important to you in order to battle against this destruction of lust. He's not saying you gotta cut off your actual hand, but he is saying whatever is most important to you that is leading you into sin, part with it. Let go of it. And I might venture a guess here as to what's most important to us in our 21st century world that is itself leading many of us into sin. Can anyone take a guess? Your iPhone, your Android phone. Are you willing? Are you, are you willing to part with what feels like so much of your normal daily life so as to be free from sin, to at least pursue freedom. Are you, are you willing to do that? Sometimes that's what it takes, just to like lay myself out here, that's what it took for me. I had a flip phone for a couple years, and you know what? I couldn't send gifts. <laughs> I, had to, my, I had to look up on MapQuest, remember that? In other words, I survived. More than that, thrived. Are you willing to part with what is most important to you in this 21st century world so as to really begin to pursue freedom, to at least give you the space to push out the assault of temptation so that you can begin to work on what's actually going on in your heart? Are you, are you willing to do that? Some of you might be saying to me, are you serious? To which I would reply, are you? When will you be tired enough? When will you be exhausted enough? And I know like our phones are so important to our jobs, many of us, but I would venture to guess that if you went to your boss and said, hey, hey you can just frame it like this. Tell them, hey, I'm wanting to live a more, uh, what's a good word for this? A less technologically savvy life in order to, to be more healthy, to uh, be more authentic. Just couch it in the language of our culture. <laughs> And so because of that, I would like to have the opportunity to, to get a little bit more of a basic phone, maybe a dumb phone. Uh, is there any way that that would work with my job? How can I work that out? If you want it badly enough, you'll ask those questions. Are, are you serious about it? Do you have, is your desire to not desire it strong enough yet? Because that's the, that's the line, that's the tipping point. I understand the category of addiction. Trust me, I have a very addictive personality. I listen to like one song that I love and I listen to it for like six months. I have a very addictive personality. I understand addiction. But there are also stories of addicts that have gone free. So what's the disconnect between their story and yours? The moment of pain being strong enough to say, I'm done. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll cut off, I'll part with whatever it takes 
for me to pursue freedom. That's the call of discipleship to many of us today. To part with whatever feels most important in order to hear Jesus' call into real life, in order to give us some space, in order to evacuate from that wildfire so that we can actually begin to work on what's actually going on in our heart. Are you serious enough? Are you tired enough to begin to take real action? Now let's take a moment to breathe. I've said a lot, I've covered a lot with you, I've yelled a lot at you. Let's just take a moment to breathe. Although it would be a major win to see a lot of you walk in here next Sunday with flip phones. <laughs> That's not the, the ultimate solve, nor the actual win. This is where this comes down to, to Christ, because the goal of your Christian life is not to not look at pornography. The goal of your Christian life is to love God what, what spiritual good is it to be free from pornography and yet have no, no increased love for who God is? We must take real action, but the goal is to love God above all. A person that's simply free from pornography but no more of a lover of God because of it is not as pleasing to God as those whose hearts beat with love for him. The goal, I'll say it again, is not to just not look at porn. The goal is to love God. And when you focus on that, when you center on that, that's where real transformation can actually happen in your battle against lust. If you focused on your love for God, if you took the energies that you are expending in order to fulfill your own sexual desire and redirected that back to seeing who God is at gazing at the beauty of God in Christ, I, on good authority, both from the Bible and my own experience, you will begin to see freedom. Slowly, sure, but it'll happen. If you begin to look and gaze upon the beauty of God in Christ, your heart will begin to change. The beauty of, of Christ will shine brighter than the allure of pornography or of just the stare out on the streets. That's where real transformation happens. This gazing at the beauty of Christ is what your soul was made for. And it's actually what your soul is deep down longing for when you're in the act of lust. You know, the, the early church fathers used to use this phrase called the beatific vision. Anybody heard of that? Great, I'll explain it. <laughs> um, it it's basically this, this idea that, that the culmination of human life and joy happens at the moment we see who God is in Christ. That our lives right now, the, when, the, 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 the fulfilling moment of our life will happen when we finally see, not through a veil, 
but I, face to face who God is in Christ. And in that moment, they say every, every pleasure, every desire, every longing will be met. And I'm here to tell you today that when you are trying to find what you want in lust, what you're looking for is the beatific vision. Why do you think you, why do you think you look so diligently? Because nothing else will satisfy No image, no body type, no whatever will satisfy like that vision will. And so if you want transformation, if you want healing, if you want to move forward in growth, sure, cut off the phone. But when you do that, do everything you can to look at Christ. Everything you can to behold and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because when his when the supremacy of Christ becomes the center of your life, all the little planets will slowly move back into its right orbit, including this massive planet of sexuality. When you see the supremacy of his love, that the Lord of life pursues you in your death, your heart will change. When you see this, the, the supremacy of his grace that does not flinch at your addiction, your heart will gaze upon and be pleased with Jesus Christ. When you see his faithfulness, like we sung about earlier, that there is not one promise, there is not one thing God has said about you or about your life that it will eventually disappoint. When you see the faithfulness of Christ, your heart will be moved to worship. The supremacy of his gentleness or just the supremacy of his person that Jesus Christ never had a beginning, (laughs) that he always was. When you just see him for who he is and see that he sees you with love and grace, it warms the human heart. So much so that the allure, the trap, the desire of lust just begins to lose its sway. I say this quote to you all the time, but like John Owen said, oh, to behold the glory of Christ on this would I live and this would I dwell until all things here below become as dead and deformed things, no longer calling out in any way for my affection or embrace. You wanna get free from lust? Look upon Christ. Behold his glory and these little things down here will become dead and deformed in comparison with the beauty that you see in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would would tend to your people right now that your Holy Spirit, I trust and believe, has convicted hearts, but I hope also invited hearts. An invitation into, into beholding, into loving who Christ is, is more valuable, more precious, even more pleasurable than anything this world or our flesh could ever offer us. 
God, as we, as we turn to respond to you in silence and in worship, would you give our hearts a fresh vision of who Jesus is? Would you convince us of the spiritual power in the name of Jesus Christ that can break strongholds and addictions? Maybe slowly over time, but break them indeed. Would you demonstrate your power? Would you have your way with us by your spirit and redirect our hearts back to loving you, worshiping you, and seeing the prize of our life as being satisfied in you. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, God, you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Let our hearts say that like our lips do. Would you work in us by your spirit now and cause us to worship you? In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.